So last week, <clears throat> we made our way through verses 8, 9, and 10. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we saw the danger for the Christian that we can become the spoils of someone else's slave trade, be taken captive through um, empty philosophy or empty deceit. And I tried as best I could to keep things simple, <clears throat> stating that ultimately what Paul is warning against is anything that suggests that faith in Jesus Christ alone is insufficient for salvation. Let me start over. What Paul is saying is that anything that suggests faith in Jesus Christ alone is not sufficient for salvation and for the promise of eternal life. It's philosophy or it's worldly wisdom or it's empty deception. There, there cannot be anything added to the gospel. The minute you add something to the gospel that isn't clearly written in this book, the moment you do that, you're now dealing in human tradition or elemental spirits of the world. You're no longer dealing with God's word and the good news. We do not take this to mean that there's no value <clears throat> in philosophy. This isn't like, ooh, see, philosophy's bad. We take it to mean that there is no philosophy which can augment or improve the gospel. The gospel is perfect for salvation on its own. Okay, uh, last week I suggested that perhaps the most common way we see gospel augmentation happening in our generation is this. In 2023, your feelings are, are more authentic, more valuable, and more authoritative than anything that exists outside of you. Let me say it again because it's too many words, right? But there's no shorter way to say it. In our age, in our culture, in our generation, what I see happening, and I'm not, I didn't come up with this. I'm not the only one. I'm not the diagnostician or whatever here. It's just something a lot of folks have noticed. Feelings, emotions experienced by the individual are the most important thing on the planet. Whatever I'm feeling right now matters more than everything else, all right? So what I see happening among Christians is that feelings or emotions are at first, perfect example, right? They're at first consulted, feelings are first consulted, then they're added to the board of directors and ultimately become the CEO of the human being. The decision-making is run through the filter of feelings instead of through the filter of what's been clearly commanded. This is because once feelings become the executive officer, subjective experience jumps ahead of and usurps the biblical imperative and something altogether different than Christianity emerges as the religion in a person's life. This is what it sounds like when this happens. It'll sound familiar. I like Jesus, I just can't stand the church. That's somebody whose feelings have become paramount over what God commands. Right? I'm spiritual, I just don't like organized religion. Or I don't think the Bible is inerrant. It's been translated so many times, we don't really know what it says anymore. I don't get, 
like I've never been able to get the number from somebody that says that to me. How many times has it been translated? That's so many. Well, it's just, we, it, we don't have the original. Yes, we do. We stinking do. We have the original Hebrew Bible. We don't have to go to the Latin. We don't have to go to the Greek, the Septuagint. We've got the OG scriptures. We can translate right to English so that our finite minds can understand it. But it's a convenient excuse. That's not an error. We don't know what it originally said. So, all right, how do you get to that place if you were a Christian? Because that's who we're talking about. I'm not talking about the lost and dying world that denies the existence of God and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Of course they do. I don't even blame them. They look at the church and go, mm-mm, not for me. Oh, I get it, right? We get it. We're in it. Of course we get it. The Holy Spirit has to move in that heart and change it. But what's going on when a Christian somehow lands in this perspective? Well, you know, you can't trust the Bible. It's been translated so many times. Well, I like, I, I'm spiritual, but I don't like organized religion. What, what's going on when a Christian reaches that place is they have given the reins over to their emotions. They're no longer interested in what God has commanded, but only in what they feel. Let me be crystal clear about this. That's my application of the text, not my interpretation of the text. There's a big difference. You could make a hundred different applications of this text depending on what's going on or what the preacher sees in his generation and in his culture. So my application is feelings have replaced the word of God in the context of the assembled church. The interpretation of the text is this. Don't add anything to the gospel or you will be taken captive by deception and philosophy at the expense of your faith. So let me illustrate it another way, or to apply it another way. Look at Matthew 13. Um, 44. Matthew 13, 44, Jesus is talking and he says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. <clears throat> so he found it and then he hid it again. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So, what Jesus is saying is that to come to understand the gospel, to come to believe and have faith in Jesus Christ is the most valuable treasure a human being can fathom. That's what the creator of the universe just said. What Jesus' parable illustrates is that a correct value of eternal relationship with my creator will result in me parting with everything else in order to have that relationship. I'm going to say it again. What Jesus is saying is that a correct valuation of the gospel, of the word of God, will drive a human being to part with everything else except for the gospel and cling to it no matter what. This is not a guilt trip. This is, like The gospel doesn't work by making you feel so bad about your poor decisions that it drives you like a slave driver to the right decision. What Jesus is saying is your heart will become preoccupied with the good news. Now, if that hasn't happened for you, I, let me know. I will pray for you. This church will pray for you. 
Let people that you know and trust find out that your heart isn't really, and we'll pray for you. We'll, because we're not, we're not trying to berate anybody into believing. My experience is this. There's nothing better to me than the word of God. There's nothing better to me than the gospel. And you will say, horse manure, James, you have a house you overpaid for. And I'll say, look, I'm not saying uh, that in the totality of my existence, the only thing I'm interested in is the word of God, because I still have remaining corruption. I still have the remnants of sin clinging to me that make me like things more than Jesus. I do. But when all the chips are down, when all the cards are face up, what you will know is, if I have to pick one thing, this is the thing that I'm picking. Christ alone. Right? That's what he means when he says, you go out of fields, you find a treasure, you don't have enough money to buy the field, but you got a whole bunch of garbage. So you sell all your garbage and buy just the field so that you can retrieve the treasure that's within it. That's the value people put. Um, so what are we to make of it when our own hearts run so readily after other lesser things? And what are we to think of Paul's warning about philosophy and empty deceit in light of Jesus' parable of the treasure hidden in the field or the pearl of great price? How could your heart be captured by anything else? How can that happen? Well, evidently by deception. Do you, do you, like it's so simple, but we don't think in these terms. You just said, I've got the most valuable thing right here in the gospel and having believed in Jesus Christ. Why would I or anybody ever turn away from it? Well, you gotta be deceived. That's what has to happen. All right, so how does deception happen? Well, the devil, devil is clever enough to know that you've, if you've already claimed to believe the gospel, you're not gonna wholesale dismiss it. You're not gonna be like, eh, I believed it yesterday, but not today, not anymore. So what he does is rather than convince you the whole thing is hogwash all at once, he'll happily do that bit at a time, little bit at a time. And I think pretty faithfully the devil starts right here with somebody in, in this context making us mad or frustrating us somehow where we're like, and they claim to be a Christian. And that's how it begins. A little weed starts growing in your heart of pride and prejudice against other people. And away we go down the path of deception. Isn't it fair to say that the devil can convince you the gospel is hogwash by convincing you to add little bits of something religious to it? You would never comprehend the pure gospel as presented in the scriptures. You never comprehend that. And then while still looking at that, the pure gospel go, eh, never mind. That'll never happen. What will happen is you come to church and, and you got a bad preacher or a bad teacher and little by little, between you and them, you start adding things to the gospel. So it's the gospel plus you've got to be moral. And I know that makes people uneasy because you think I'm playing fast and loose with, with, with grace, but the reality is it's not the gospel plus morality. It's not Jesus plus you're, you're well behaved. It's just Jesus. So we add a little bit of moral sin. Then we're going to add, well, you got to serve in, in Sunday school. Or you got to do VBS. Uh, you got to help out in children's ministry. Uh, you got to homeschool your kids. Uh, you got to, like, 
right, once enough garbage has been added to it that doesn't matter, and you get frustrated with all the trash, you'll throw the whole thing out. And the devil knows that. The deceiver knows that. So what, what would I say? I would say that some discipline is required if we're going to rightly value the gospel. Isn't it fair to say some, oh, I don't know, some seeing to it is required? So Paul says, remember that in Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of God dwells in bodily form. That's the first guardrail that, that he puts up for us. Then he reminds us that we have been filled in him. Curious language, it would make more sense to me if Paul said, you have been filled with him, by him, but instead he says, in him. And I went and looked, and that's what it says. It's not just English flowery language. It's, it, it's but like, why doesn't he say, by him? Here's what I think, and this is just at no extra charge, lest we get hung up. It would make more sense for Paul to say, uh, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Jesus in bodily form, and you've been filled by him. That would make more sense, except for this. We can't hold very much God in us. Right? Like it's a thimble at best. So instead, rather than just filling us with as much divinity as we can contain, which wouldn't be much, Jesus instead grafts us into himself. Thus, our very nature becomes increasingly like his own. And we are filled from the source. We draw our spiritual nutrition from the one in whom all the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form. This is the difference between giving, being given a dose of Christ and being in Christ, right? Uh, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deceit. Reason one, you're already joined to the one true God. Reason two, he has filled you with fullness, satisfaction, and vitality by filling you with his divine presence. And now we move on to reason three, verse 11, Colossians 2. In him, so that's the end of review. We're, this is a new sermon now at 1032. Uh, Colossians 2.11, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. I know half of you didn't even listen to what I just read because the minute you hear circumcised, you're like, whatever. <laughs> and the other half didn't want to listen because when you hear circumcised, you're like, Ooh. it's always fun to talk about circumcision at church. Uh, the Old Testament uh, Jewish practice instituted as a sign of the covenant made with Abraham in Genesis 17 was repeated in the Mosaic law in Leviticus 12. So what's circumcision? Ready? Buckle up, kids. Uh, circumcision is the surgical removal of the, of the prepuce or the foreskin of the male, right? The, the removal of this fold of skin uh, seems at the very least to me, as a Southern Baptist, seems at the very least to me like an odd indicator of one's spirituality. Because you're not going to run around showing that to everybody. See how spiritual I am. However, 
There aren't any other physical alterations that could be prescribed by God to only the males and all of the males that wouldn't have left them permanently maimed. It's the only thing you can do to, right? So the practice, like why else did God choose it? I have no idea. And neither does anybody else who claims that they do. It's strange from our perspective. The practice, though, literally illustrates what? The removal of something. Right? I'm not trying to make anybody uncomfortable. The painful parting with something every Hebrew male went through was a vivid picture of what needed to happen in order for a sinner to become acceptable to God. But it did not make anyone godly. It merely signified the putting off of the old self. The setting apart of the person to God. So Paul references the practice to teach us something uh, else which happens when we become united with Christ. In him, <clears throat> you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That is, your flesh was put off or disempowered, or put away, in a manner of speaking. You tracking with me? I'll start over, because I don't think you are. I almost quit listening to myself. In him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That's what the Bible said in verse 11 there. In him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That is, what that means is your flesh was put off or disempowered or put away in a manner of speaking. Your flesh. No, I'm, I'm not going to go one more time. Because I don't want to get hung up on the cutting here. We'll be helped if we just keep going, right? Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is, I like this better. Baptism, like circumcision, and I think, in fact, better than circumcision, is an illustration of a spiritual reality. One of the reasons that I like it better is because now, instead of, um, I mean, some people are so busy being egalitarian that they, they fall on a sword without even realizing I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Because half, well, half of you are like, egala who? Uh, one of the things I discovered in studying circumcision way back when, probably when I was preaching through Acts and Timothy gets circumcised, one of the things I discovered was there's this perspective um, of circumcision that it was only the males because as we all know, in Old Testament time, women were equivalent to dogs and treated like property and weren't allowed to participate in the covenant sign of Abraham. Like, okay, you ask a woman back then if they wanted to, my guess would be no thanks, <laughs> right? But we're so egalitarian that, you know, women were so repressed. Okay, granted, I have some issues with the lack of egalitarianism in the Old Testament. And I understand why any lady would look at it and go, thank God we live in the church age, right? Baptism, I like better because 
every believer participates in it. So it's a sign of the covenant, the promise of God to cleanse and forgive sins and redeem the sinner that everybody who has faith can participate in. So I like it better for that reason. Death is depicted when we fall back into the water, right? When you get baptized, you go in just like you would the grave, unless you've, like in your will, you're going to be buried face down. Um, The grave is depicted when the water covers us over. So you go all the way under. Carrie, I'm sorry. I... Please don't get too distracted by my, my reference. The, the water covering you over depicts the grave. So you die and you get buried in the grave. You're completely concealed by the dirt. So what is the Christian saying when they go under the waters of baptism? I'm dead. Then what happens? Well, we get buried in baptism, we're signifying the end of our nonsense, our sin, our idolatry, our addiction to creature worship, and the end, essentially, of us. What happens then is, we come back up. Now, the cool thing about baptism and the reason that anytime we're doing a baptism and there can be a dad involved, I offer to let him, like, not let him, but I encourage them to, to you, you baptize your kid. Like, I mean, I'll do it if you don't want to, but you should do it. Because what, what the person administering the baptism is doing is playing out the part of God in raising the sinner from the dead. Because guess what? If you bend your knees and fall back in the water without turning over and using your hands and pushing yourself back up, you're not coming back up. I have to raise you back up. It's showing what God does with the dead sinner. Through faith in Christ, they are raised back up. Now, when we come back to life, does all of our nonsense come back with us? Well, it feels like it, doesn't it? I think I had a resolution. uh, I was like, after my baptism, I'm never going to swear again. I might have made it two or three hours. Uh. But going to the grave is not like going to bed. What this text is telling us is we go down, but we don't come back up on our own. Look at it. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So passive is what we were. You were raised. You didn't raise. It happened to you. Through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead, look, just trust me, keep going. Verse 13, again, what happened? You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So Christian, what like super simple question answer time. Who saved you? Right. It should be easy. I feel like everyone should be able to nail this. Even if you don't believe it, if you just want to participate and saying an answer out loud at church, here's your chance. Who saved you? Okay, that was better. Um, What saved you? How did it happen? You were dead. 
What got you alive? Well, you didn't do anything. While you were dead, God made you alive together with Jesus, having forgiven you all your trespasses. And by the word way, the word all was not added by English translators. It's in the original Greek. All. And, and the Greek, it means all, any, every, the whole of it, all manner of. There's a lot of ways this word gets translated. God made you alive together with Jesus, having forgiven you all your trespasses. That means past, present, and future sins. Verse 14 now. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this, the record of debt, this, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So you have to go look at 2 Corinthians 5 now. You have to. So actually look at the first verse of chapter 6 and then just go back one verse. That'll be easier. 521. For our sake, he made him who, I'm sorry, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What your Bible is teaching you or reteaching you if you already know this, and I know a lot of you probably do, is that when Jesus was nailed violently, hatefully, and horribly to the cross, the worst part about you and let me be clear here, not the guilt of your sin, not the fear created by your sin, not the shame and the embarrassment experienced because of your sin, your sin was nailed to the cross. Because God made him, that's Jesus, who knew, K-N-E-W, knew no sin. He didn't make him a sinner. He made him into sin and nailed it to the cross so that the record of debt against you, which God held to your account, all the legal demands of that debt was paid. All of it. So go ahead, do it. Think of the worst thing you ever did if you need to. That people cannot forgive you for doing. Or if people found out they wouldn't forgive you for doing. And, and then listen, I'm begging you. I didn't make these words up. You read them right along with me. Let's read them again. 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The worst thing about you. You were given life. You were given fellowship. You were brought into the fold. You were given a garment of righteousness. You were given the Holy Spirit. You were loved. You were embraced. You were made to be part of the body of Christ. You were made a partaker in all the promises made by God. What do you need to add to that? Nothing. 
nor can you. Oh, but watch us try, right? So then the flow goes from 8 to 14 like this. Verse 8. See to it, no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Don't become the spoils of someone else's slave trade by falling for some nonsense where someone is adding something to the gospel. And, and if, you, if you hear that warning and you think, yeah, yeah, got it, I won't. You don't got it. All of us, and I mean the purest theologian on earth here too, all of us are adding things to the gospel. I'll prove it when we get to verse 11. Anyway, verse 8, put away the philosophies of men and the lies of mankind. You're a Christian now, right? Verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily which means God was fully depicted by the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. With your eyes in the scriptures, I realize that we can't physically look at him. And we heard it this morning, the end of John 20, right? Blessed are them that have not seen and yet believe because we're viewing him through the picture painted for us in the scriptures. Verse 10, <clears throat> you've been filled in him who is... <coughs> excuse me, who is the head of all rule and authority. You've been fully supplied with everything needed for life in this difficult world and in the glorious one to come. You've been fully supplied. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So whatever needed, look, Please, remember I said I was going to prove something with verse 11. Whatever needed to be removed from you. Um, yeah, like everybody's got to hear this. Everybody's got to hear this. Whatever needed to be removed from you already got removed. I'm not, that's not me going, you are perfect just the way you are. Uh-uh. That's not what I mean. I'm saying what needed to be taken from you in order for you to be in relationship with God, he took. That is a cute cat. There is literally a kitten. It's a Christian cat. <laughs> Whatever needed to be removed from you already got removed and it did not get removed by frantic, frenetic religious activity. That's not how it happened. Running VBS doesn't take away your sin. Homeschooling doesn't take away your sin. Going to a particular church, including this one, does not take away your sin. Impressing your boss doesn't do it. Posting a scripture verse to Instagram doesn't take away your sin. Being right about everything all the time doesn't take away your sin. Railing against transgender ideology doesn't take away your sin. It doesn't do it. Reading the Christian in complete armor doesn't take away your sin. Criticizing your spouse doesn't take away your sin. Ingratiating yourself to powerful people does not take away your sin. Eating trash, meaning not eating keto, doesn't take away your sin. Going keto doesn't take away your sin. Getting married doesn't. Having kids doesn't. Like, do I need to go on? Fill in the blank. 
doesn't take away your sin. What do you think needs to be cut off? What needs to be removed from you? Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You already died. It's no longer you who lives. It's Christ who lives in you. So whatever needed to get removed, it already got removed. Does sin remain? Does sin remain? Absolutely. But it cannot reign in your life since it's no longer you who live. 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So God gave you the breath. He caused your spiritual heart to beat for the first time. He made your spiritual eyes flutter open. He made your spiritual ears start to hear and understand. He made your hands and feet start moving. God did that. Did he make a boo-boo? Was it a mistake? Did he mean to get the person next to you, but he got you instead? No. He always gets the person he wants. 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, your sin, all your sin was dealt with, the debt was paid, you don't owe anything. You don't owe anything. Yeah, you don't owe anything. Which means that the believer is no longer subject to the threat made by the law's condemnation. All you have to do to continue adding things to the gospel is not believe what I've said here this morning is true. Oh, he's one of those easy believists just believe in Jesus. That's correct. That's, that's what I believe. Nothing else is going to save me from my sin other than Jesus Christ. Nothing less, and there is nothing greater. So if that's easy believism, uh, then I'm guilty. Yeah. Just believe in Jesus. If you're no longer subject to the threat of the law's condemnation, what can you add to that? What can you add to that? You're no longer subject to the threat of the law's condemnation. So everything in the Bible that, that threatens you has been taken away. Everything about you that made you subject to the law's threats has been taken away. It's been cut out. It's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. It's not a part of you anymore. Now, look, I get it. I'm, I look at my own life and I'm like, oof, this is hard to believe because I know myself. And I'll see myself at work tomorrow morning and hear the things that are coming out of my mouth at work tomorrow morning and be like, mm, I think we need to do better, right? Granted. However, from an eternal perspective, nothing you're going to do is going to add to or take away from your salvation. It has been fully, freely granted to you to have eternal life because of your faith in Jesus Christ. 
Now, if you don't believe that, if you're not a Christian, if you're here this morning and you're like, eh, not sure why I'm here, but I don't buy any of that. What you need is to have the Holy Spirit soften your heart and illuminate your mind to understand these things. Because I promise you, the anxiety and the anger that you experience as a result of trying to run the show day by day isn't going anywhere until you bend a knee to King Jesus. And I pray he makes you more miserable every day you don't until you finally do. What a horrible thing to desire for somebody, right? Except I know the outcome of your faith will be eternal life in him. Let's pray together.